0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony, in the tent of meeting. Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before Yahweh regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before Yahweh regularly. You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on the table of pure gold before Yahweh. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to Yahweh. Every Sabbath day Aaron shall arrange it before Yahweh regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of Yahweh's food offerings a perpetual dew. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith, the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody, till the will of Yahweh should be clear to them. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him, and speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him the sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. And whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am Yahweh your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as Yahweh commanded Moses. Yahweh spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, The land shall keep a Sabbath to Yahweh. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year shall there be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to Yahweh. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself, and for your male and female slaves, and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle, and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall be given forty-nine years, then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement you shall sound the trumpet throughout your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan, that fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee each of you shall return to his property, and if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price, and if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am Yahweh your God." Therefore you shall do my statutes, and keep my rules, and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill, and dwell in it securely. And if you say, What shall we eat in the seventh year, if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, You will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year, when its crop arrives. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of jubilee. In the jubilee it shall be released and he shall return to his property. If a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within a year of its sale. For a full year he shall have the right to redemption. If it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong in perpetuity to the buyer throughout his generations. It shall not be released in the Jubilee. But the houses of the villages that have no wall around them shall be classified with the fields of the land they may be redeemed, and they shall be released in the Jubilee. As for the cities of the Levites, the Levites may redeem at any time the houses in the cities they possess. And if one of the Levites exercises his right of redemption, then the house that was sold in a city they possess shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the people of Israel. But the fields of pasture land Belonging to their cities may not be sold, for that is their possession forever. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you he and his children with him and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you, who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you, or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself, To him until the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. The time he was with his owner shall be rated as the time of a hired worker. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionately for his redemption some of his sale price. If there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service. He shall treat him as a worker hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 614 of this podcast. Today is Monday, May 8th, 2023. And that was actually a twofer. That was two chapters of Leviticus for the price of one episode. And the reason being, chapter 24 is pretty short. It it is. And I got to the end of reading chapter 24 and I thought, you know, why not? I'm just going to keep going. right? And then chapter 25 is a little bit on the longer side. So it's like twice as long as chapter 24, but both and are actually quite rich uh, in significance, in meaning. Not that we should be surprised by that, but I think compared with, if I'm just speaking honestly, speaking candidly here, which I endeavor to do. That's my ambition. That's my commitment to you is that I want to speak candidly and not be a weasel and not be manipulative and not be engaging in sleight of hand or anything like that. I want to persuade you. And even if I don't persuade you, at least have presented an honest showing of what I am persuaded of or what I'm processing. Maybe that also will help you. You'll be persuaded that you should also be processing, even if You come to a different conclusion. But if I'm just being candid, reading Leviticus 24 and 25, I see more that readily makes sense to me in terms of having ramifications in our day. I see more that just readily applies, not that the rest doesn't apply, but this more intuitively applies to my way of thinking to our current context and some of the things that we are struggling with socioeconomically and politically and culturally in this day in the year 2023, the year of our Lord in the United States of America. You know, the bit about lamps, that's kind of indicative or typical of what uh, throws me for a loop. Uh, You know, there's the bit about lamps at the top of chapter 24. And I think, okay, well, there's some benefit, sure to knowing this is a regular thing. This is something to keep up with and not just to do whenever you feel like it. But arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before Yahweh regularly. Keep them burning regularly. Here's where to put them. Here's the time frame from evening to morning before Yahweh regularly. Okay that's good. You know there's some diligence that God is requiring and prescribing and commanding from Aaron. But then we get into the bread of the tabernacle and what is that and okay maybe still there is diligence that is being expected God wants certain particulars attended to he wants this done in an intentional way. And then we get some narrative starting in verse 10, going on to verse 16, we get some narrative injected into Leviticus that breaks up the instructions being given. So it's, I want you to do this and do this and do this. And oh, by the way, this thing happened. Let me tell you about it. And one wonders, I wonder whether this is in the narrative form and therefore we should see the rest of the instructions that have been given in narrative form. And are we, right? We're seeing law, but actually the law being given to Moses from God or to Moses and Aaron from God to then be communicated to Aaron and his sons or to the people of Israel. Each of those laws starts with, and Yahweh spoke to Moses. And so we have that, and we should understand that this is the story of god giving the law to moses and saying tell this to the people tell them i said such and such we should understand that this is all narrative actually it's not just dry instructions for baking a cake and then we change gears entirely to okay and and now i'm going to go from giving you a recipe to telling you about how we all sat down and enjoyed this cake or there was a food fight or somebody dropped their piece on the floor and we had to clean it up. No, it's like, I'm going to tell you the story of baking the cake. Then I'm going to include a bit about how while we were making this cake, or God was giving us instructions on how to make this cake, somebody started trying to throw ingredients in that are nasty, which God said to not include, actually. Almost as if The person who was inserting the nasty ingredients here was doing it just to prove that he doesn't have to follow the recipe. He can do whatever he wants. And when this is just humanly speaking, if it's just this guy not wanting to have Moses tell him what to do, but Moses hasn't been given any official authority from God, well, then that's one thing. But if you're treating it like it's that, but it's actually very clear that God has spoken to Moses to tell the people such and such, then that's a different story. It's not just you're disagreeing with the recipe, you're trying to innovate the recipe, or you're going off the recipe, you're including ingredients that are gross and that are not edible. You know, if this is actually a recipe from God, then what are you doing to even curse God's name? And what's that about? It's curious, we don't know a whole lot, but then again, we know uh, just enough to make us somewhat confused with this whole stoning of the man whose father was an Egyptian. His mother was an Israelite, his father was an Egyptian. They have a conflict, he and some other Israelite man. And we're given his mother's name, we're given the fact that she was an Israelite of a certain tribe, we're told his mother's mother's name or his mother's father's name, probably mother's father's. Shelomith was his mother's name. She was the daughter of Dibri, but we don't necessarily know, or it's not clear to me. I'm not familiar with this name from elsewhere. But Dibri is of the tribe of Dan. So it's noteworthy. It's important. It's significant. And why is that? Well, because it's not just that this Man has blasphemed the name of the Lord his God, despite Moses having faithfully communicated to the people, "You don't do this." God said, "Don't do this." He takes it very seriously. His name is the whole reason why he has brought us out of Egypt, and he's bringing us into the promised land. Why he's provided for us, and why he's protected us. You don't do this, and then what do they do? They stone the guy who took the name of the Lord their God in vain, who cursed the name, as it says. And that doesn't just leave a mark on the name of the Lord. In fact, it doesn't leave a mark on the name of the Lord, except that you should revere God's name. You should keep it holy. But there is something of a dishonoring of his mother in this case. And why? Because his father was an Egyptian. Was he struggling with... What does it look like for me to honor my father who was an Egyptian, but you guys keep talking smack about the Egyptians? I don't like what you guys did to Egypt, or I don't like what God did to Egypt, the land of my father. We don't know, right? There's a lot that we could speculate, but here we are, (laughs) not knowing fully, even as we are fully known, but given enough to go on to draw at least the meaningful conclusion that God takes his name very seriously, and so should we. Then we get the eye for an eye, which Jesus references in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, if anyone slaps you on the one cheek, turn to him the other also. That has more to do with insults. But then in the context of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we're talking about not just slapping, we're talking about somebody getting into a fight, we're talking about a scrap where there is not a turning of the other cheek. This escalates, and it builds and builds and builds. And what did we just see with the guy who got into a fight? And then he's cursing the name of the Lord his God. There's a fight in the camp, and next thing you know, there's a blaspheming of God's name. And then we have the bit about an eye for an eye. If you take a human life, you'll be put to death. Which is to say, don't let these things get out of hand. But if you take an animal's life, and... I think we should understand that this is in the context of a conflict. So you're going to try and get back at this person. And so you kill one of their animals. That'll show them. Maybe while they're not looking, you injure and kill their animal. What's the penalty there? Well, you're going to pay them back. You're going to make it right. You're going to restore them. You can't just be killing their animals because that's going to escalate up and up and up. And at a certain point, they're protecting their property from you. And now you're scrapping. And now somebody's dead before you know it, just like that. These things build and build and build. The way to actually limit the amount of violence is not, I'll let them sort it out. What happens, happens. You know, some people read this and they say, wow, this is really harsh. But actually, this is a way of curtailing. This is a way of curbing and limiting the violence. It's a way of deterring violence. If the expectation is as you Judge others, so shall you be judged. If the expectation is, if you harm someone else, harm your neighbor because you got into a conflict, the same will be done to you. And not just by your neighbor, but rather this is the law that the community is to uphold. This is justice according to God for Israel. But then, briefly, and we won't spend a lot of time on this, but just briefly, I want to present to you the suggestion that we don't give near enough attention to the year of Jubilee, the Sabbath year for one, but the year of Jubilee in chapter 25. We don't give near enough attention. I think there's a lot that Leviticus 25 could teach us about how a society's rhythms should be overseen and managed and shepherded by governing authorities based on God's principles here. Now, I'm not saying that we are under this law. And I'm not saying that the United States of America or any other modern nation is Israel. Maybe you could say Israel is Israel, right? The modern nation of Israel is Israel. These are the Jews, and they are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, therefore. But the United States of America might just as soon be New Babylon as New Jerusalem. We'll see, right? Time will tell. God knows either way when we talk about christians being engaged in politics and assessing various proposals that are put forward by political candidates or political action committees or political parties or commentators might i just suggest that it doesn't occur to most of us to ever think about the year of jubilee and its ramifications for being restorative from from a you know punitive standpoint, maybe we understand pretty well the idea that if somebody commits murder, then they should get the death penalty. If we're sure that they committed murder, particularly if they've killed a lot of people, several people, and we have hard evidence that they are guilty, we understand most of us pretty easily well they should be put to death. But how about when it comes to tackling the problems of poverty? Are we going to God's word? Are we going to the Old Testament at all? to look at what God told Israel, not because we're under it, but because it says something about God's character and his idea for us of how to seek peace and pursue it as a people, as a nation. You know, we see in Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee, where property is going back. Not always, right? If it's out in the country or if it's in a city that doesn't have a wall or a town that doesn't have a wall, if it's a house or if it's, fields, then the year of Jubilee sees it going back to the person or the family who sold it because they were trying to scrape together some funds for something else. You know, maybe just to live. Maybe they weren't managing their business very well. And now they've come up short. This is the way they get back in the black. If it's a house in a walled city though, It doesn't go back to the person who sold it on the year of Jubilee. Now it stays with the person who bought it throughout their generations, which is to say in perpetuity until they sell it. So we see distinctions, which also could be instructive if we were looking at them, if we were considering them, I think, because I've seen, I have seen a person or two on the left bring up the year of Jubilee and say, you know, we should look at debt forgiveness Look at how many Americans have mortgages or they have student loan debt or they have credit card debt. We should look at a year of jubilee. I've heard it suggested by at least one academic, and it went nowhere that I know of. Nobody picked it up nobody said hey yeah let's let's talk about that let's really dig into that and I think that's unfortunate uh, also briefly briefly briefly, the whole bit about if One of your brothers, one of your fellow Israelites, again, trying to get back in the black. He comes up short. Maybe he wasn't managing his business well. Maybe just something bad happened, right? Illness or drought or pests or an accident. He doesn't have enough to support himself and his family. He sells himself. If he sells himself to a foreigner who is a sojourner with you, a non-native, not an Israelite, That non-native can buy him for a time. But if he starts being oppressive, then the expectation is that other Israelites will redeem their fellow because God's expectation is you serve me first and foremost. It doesn't mean you can't and won't ever serve one another, even as a slave. But if one of you buys your fellow Israelites, you're going to treat him like you would an employee, essentially. Like you would a con- a contract uh, laborer for a year at a time. You're not going to abuse him. You're not going to oppress him. God takes that very seriously. Now, you can buy foreigners, though. So that's an interesting thing. And this gets pretty tricky to talk about, to think about in light of America's history with slavery. And by that, I don't mean that America was a peculiarly slave-owning country, but the most is made of slavery in America for reasons of activism in particular, leftist agitation, promoting socialism and communism and all the rest. But as a result, as a result of all of the noise from the left about America having a history with slavery of black Africans, and yes, real oppression that happened Black Africans who were brought here as slaves and their descendants were abused and oppressed in the deep south, especially. But some will say, Well, it's not right if you wouldn't do that to your fellow European, then it's not right that you would do that to an African. And I say, Well, okay, generally, yes, but then also at the same time, if we're looking at Leviticus here and we see God saying, You can buy slaves from the neighboring nations, but you I don't want I don't want you to be treating your fellow Israelites the exact same way that you do people from surrounding surrounding nations I, I don't want you doing the same thing with slaves from surrounding nations as you do with your fellow Israelites or vice versa rather there's something there that is instructive now it doesn't mean that white southerners who bought and sold and kept slaves it doesn't mean that They had a blank check and that they were justified or that they weren't sinning in the ways that they treated their fellow human being made alike in God's image. But our standard needs to be when we're assessing what they did and what they didn't do, our standard needs to be, what does God's word say? What does it actually say? Mark Knowles' book here is quite good. The Civil War is a Theological Crisis gets into the history of this being a first and foremost theological debate before it was a military conflict between the North and the South. Do check that book out because it's it's quite eye-opening. I think if you check that book out, you'll realize that a lot of the way we handle theology and theological debates today uh, is truncated. It's been seared in some sense. Our national conscience has been seared by the first American Civil War. Certainly World Wars I and Two had a huge impact on Europe, Christian civilization in Europe, but then also they were a consequence of a theological debate, first and foremost, previously. It's important for us to remember these things as we approach these topics and to keep them in mind. But let's move on. Some food for thought on the year of Jubilee. I'd love to talk more about it, but we do have some current events items to get to. There's a story, for instance, in the Greeley Tribune, local news, About a Triceratops. Yeah, I know. Uh, That was quite, quite different for us to have just talked about the year of Jubilee and slavery. And now we're going to talk about dinosaur fossils. But hear me out. Weld County welcomes back. Pops the Triceratops after restoration. There's 15 photos. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. I bring it up because... In part, I like dinosaurs. Who doesn't like dinosaurs? But I also bring it up in part because this triceratops was donated to the county, to Weld County, in 1986, the year that I was born, on the condition it be displayed for the public in a county facility. It took all these years to go from it being donated to it now being displayed. Was it not displayed before now? I don't know. I really don't know. So maybe it was displayed and then they had to do a restoration and now it's back. You know, they they took it off of public display, did the restoration, brought it back again. I don't know. I'm not sure. But one of the photos is of the skull, which is largely intact. It looks like not 100%, but largely. There's also a picture of some jawbone and part of the hips and a dorsal vertebrae. Those were in boxes under the original display case. Also, there is an artistic reconstruction of Pops the Triceratops in the dinosaur's natural environment in Weld County, quote, more than 69 million years ago, end quote. Here's another quote. When Pops roamed Weld County, the area was warmer and very humid with swamps and a lot of vegetation. Allow me if i may to pose the question of why environmentalists who hold to charles darwin's theory being correct and a very old age for the earth and even just generally they believe that all life on planet earth arose through natural processes unguided by god undirected totally random mutations over long periods of time for those people How do they make the jump to saying that global warming or climate change is man caused when by their own timelines, by their own narrative, their own origin story for the earth and everything in it and the people and the animals and the plant life and all the rest by their own account, they believe that the earth's climate has been very, very different In years past, in eons long gone. You know, I was struck when Solomon and I went to the Grand Canyon for his birthday here several weeks ago, and we hit up Petrified Forest National Park on the way home. And I was looking up some of the online explanations, videos, and articles and things like that, explaining how it came to be that this desert was at one time a huge forest. And the official theory is this was all one big forest and swamp and scientists think that these trees, as they would fall over, they would just immediately get covered in mud in the swamp and that's how they came to be fossilized. But this was all forest. This big, big, big area was all forest and there were dinosaurs and there were various other extinct creatures that we find fossils of right alongside the fossilized tree stumps and tree trunks. And I found myself thinking, man, what do they think caused that before man? If the climate can change so dramatically that where there once was a large forest, now it's just fossilized trees. There was a a swamp here in Weld County and it was significantly Warmer and very humid with swamps and a lot of vegetation. And that changed long before they believe human beings were even a feature. Why are they just so sure that mankind is driving climate change now? If climate change is occurring, which we all should agree, climate change is a real thing, but it's a naturally occurring thing that we are not primary drivers of, what's the explanation for ice ages long before? We believe man was a significant carbon producer. What's the explanation? And of course, there are a lot of explanations for much more dramatic climate change having occurred in Earth's history that have nothing to do with human activity whatsoever. But now, now that we're here, oh, it's primarily caused by humans. The climate changing is primarily caused by humans. How do they make that leap? Uh, I can't. I can't make that leap with them. And I think that it's not consistent thinking. I really, I, I really think that it's uh, a kind of religion for people who don't worship God in spirit and in truth. They latch onto these things, whether these things all make sense together, whether they make the best sense of the evidence is less important than the sense of purpose and belonging and social cohesion to the folks who say, and I quote, the science is settled, or, and I quote, trust the experts. But another local story pertaining to climate change, from the Denver Post, written by Conrad Swanson, a plan to pay farmers to use less of the Colorado River comes up dry. It's a comical mess, Sean Chapoose, chairman of Northeast Utah's Ute Indian tribe, said. They ain't fixing nothing. So long and short, it was proposed that maybe the government could pay farmers to just not use the water, which would be to say to not farm, to not grow crops. Now, is part of the reason why this proposal would fall flat? Because years and years of lower than needed precipitation has left uh, a lot of uh, reservoirs in the West dry, but then all of a sudden we get a change in the climate and we get much higher than typical snowfall on the mountains and rainfall in California and elsewhere, is it possible that maybe just maybe the climate changing before you had a chance to do anything removes the justification for your proposed action, paying farmers to not farm? I think so. I think so. Uh, But also too, there is something to letting the land heal. And we should remember that as Christians, engaging in these debates, two things can be true at the same time. One, that the radical environmentalists are off their rocker. The evidence doesn't support the conclusions, the hyperbolic, catastrophic conclusions that they come to, which are actually much more metaphysical at root than they are based on sound science, really, truly. The, the evidence is interpreted to justify what they want to believe about God and man and also the world and the universe. But it can be true that so much of what passes for settled science and sound government policy and responsible environmental stewardship is predicated on really an anti-human, anti-God view of things. And at the same time, it can be true that there's a place for being a conservationist. We see that in the passage from Leviticus that I was reading for you about jubilee and a Sabbath year. For six years, sow your fields, prune your vineyard, gather the fruits, harvest. On the seventh year, let the land rest. So this is something like crop rotation. Before modern science discovered it, God knew that you need to let the land rest periodically. And what does he say? Well, you're going to ask, what are we supposed to eat the seventh year? And God says, the sixth year, you will have enough for three years and you should save it so that you can have something to eat while those lands are lying fallow and being replenished. And so also we should expect that God is able to restore our land. He's able to heal our land. That's one of the phrases that comes up In the Old Testament, heal your land. If my people who are called by my name will hear my voice and turn from their sins and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and forgive them their sins and heal their land, which is to say that the land itself can be corrupted by man's sin. But we have to go to God to find out what it is that is actually corrupting our land. It's not burning fossil fuels, ladies and gentlemen that is poisoning our land. It is innocent blood being shed, the blood of innocent children, abortion. It's the perversion and the sexual immorality and the murder and the fraud that is poisoning our land. And it's God who is able to heal our land and we ourselves as well. If we will turn from our sins and seek his face, I have another story to share with you from the Denver Post. This one about a Colorado student told she can't wear sash with Mexican flag at graduation. The district superintendent says issue not about specific country, but about unification of graduation regalia. Naomi Expenya Villasono felt proud as she admired the graduation stole hanging around her neck with one half designed to look like the American flag, the other half like the Mexican flag. The 18-year-old Mexican-American from Colorado's Western Slope said the sash captured her pride as an American while honoring her Mexican roots. And she's a lovely-looking young woman, shown, pictured with the, looks like a scarf to me, I don't know the difference, but the sash, as they say, uh, hanging around her neck. She's sitting under a tree, smiling. I think that this is much ado about nothing, quite honestly. It doesn't bother me whether she would wear it or whether she wouldn't wear it personally, but I bring it to your attention because what were we just talking about in Leviticus several episodes ago with God saying he didn't want fields to be planted with two different crops and he didn't want clothes to be sewn together from two different types of materials. But then when you look at the context, what is really being highlighted in this symbolic way is God doesn't want the people of Israel obeying him and also the gods of the nations he's driving out. Either the gods of the Egyptians that he delivered them from or the gods of the Canaanites that he is driving out before them to give them the promised land. You can't serve both the gods of those nations and also Yahweh God. And it's not to say that the gods of Mexico are different than the gods of the United States of America. But then on the other hand, there's a principle that applies that translates to some extent, to a limited extent, sure, but it's something to think about. On the one hand, we have the Garfield County School District 16 superintendent saying, and I quote, this issue was never about a flag from a specific country. The issue is that moving away from our rules opens the door to all manner of expression with graduation garb, which we believe would discourage the unification of our graduates and distract from the celebration of our students' great academic accomplishments, end quote. So if this were even a U.S. flag, but not everybody's wearing a U.S. flag, that would presumably also be against the rules. That would be undermining the symbolic message that they are trying to send with the way that they carry out this ceremony. Does this ceremony, first and foremost, rest with Naomi Peña Velasono, or is this the institution that she attended, their ceremony to conduct as they intended to? It's an important question. In her defense, she says that her parents came here for a better life. And so it's not that she hates the United States of America or anything like that, but then again, if I may, if your parents came here for a better life, was that just because our geography or our climate or we have more coastline? You know, it's like what what was the reason that this was a better life? Was it not because there's a shared set of values and ideas, not just lots of riverways, not just an abundance of wealth? Was it not also Your parents came here because there's more political stability in the United States of America than there is in Mexico. There's more, or at least there typically has been, there's more safety here than there is in many South American countries and in Central American countries like Mexico. I'm personally not offended if somebody emigrated here from Mexico and they still are flying the Mexican flag. But then on the other hand, I think to myself, why are you here if not Because a better life in America has something to do with America being a better country, plain and simple. My ancestors emigrated from the British Isles and from Switzerland because certainly at the time that they emigrated here, America was a better country for opportunity, for security and for provision than either Scotland or England or Ireland or Switzerland was. America was a better country for raising their family. And so what do I now do? I don't fly the flag of Scotland or the flag of Switzerland. I still maintain that the United States of America is a better country. And I hope that continues to be the case. I hope that we will give up on a lot of the folly and the sin that is being promoted publicly. It's shameful It erodes our capacity to be even a stable nation, a sustainable nation moving forward. But I'm an American, I'm not a Scot. I'm interested in my heritage on that side. I'm an American, I'm not a Swiss person, whatever you call somebody from Switzerland. And I should think if I were graduating from some institution or I were joining some organization that said, here's the uniform, I can appreciate where I come from while at the same time respecting that my wanting to be associated with this group is going to see me respecting their rules. We see this also in Leviticus 24 and 25, this idea that you have one law for the native and the sojourner, one law in many cases, in most cases, sometimes there are distinctions like in the case of who can own slaves and how they're to be treated and all that. But in most cases, it's, there's one law. If somebody's not from around here and they don't agree with that, that's not their conviction. They don't believe that's actually wrong for them to do the thing that you're telling them not to do. It doesn't matter. That's the law. That's what we do here. That's who we are as a people. If you don't like it, then why are you here? But if you do like it, if you do like to be with us, well, then just embrace this. Embrace it fully and don't complain and don't make us out to be awful for saying, this is what we're about. This is who we are. This is our distinctive. If it is indeed appropriate for us to have distinctives, which I would insist it is, it must be. We don't continue to be a better country if we're just like every other country. Moving on. Daniel Plainview at Not The B just yesterday reported, Tucker Carlson is getting ready to launch a Fox News competitor and is preparing for war. The scoop from Axios and their headline is, quote, Tucker Carlson ready to torch Fox News, end quote. Axios cites sources close to Tucker to report that he is mobilizing an effort to get himself released from his contract with Fox News so he can launch his own competitor, quote, a media empire of his own, end quote. That is... Quite an interesting development. Also, supposedly, he's in talks with Elon Musk about a joint venture. So maybe that's where some of the capital comes from. Elon Musk will be a financial backer for Tucker Carlson. Maybe that fits in with the new direction for Twitter. That would be interesting. That would be very interesting. We'll see. Presented without any more comment than that. Now you know. Harambe, also over at Not the Be, published a piece just two days ago, Americans are starting to reject transgenderism and mass, and I kind of think the Washington Post isn't happy about it. So here highlighted is a piece titled, Most Americans Support Anti-Trans Policies Favored by GOP Poll Shows. 57% of adults say a person's gender is determined from the start, that is, from birth. 43% say it can differ. Marco Rubio tweeted out May 5th. Notice how they spin the headline calling them anti-trans. Headline should be, poll shows most Americans still realize gender is a biological fact. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Megan Kelly also picked this up. She tweeted out May 6th. Most Americans do not want biological males in female sports. Don't want medical interventions for minors and don't want any of this nonsense being discussed with young kids. Wake up, leftists. Most of us don't want what it is that you are selling. We're not buying it. Finally, Charles C.W. Cook tweeted out May 5th, and yet the post continues to call those policies anti-trans, even as it confirms in this piece that the public does not see them that way, totally captured by activists. And take care. All parties, be encouraged if the majority of Americans are not for this, that's a good sign, but even if the majority of Americans change their minds because they get brainwashed into agreeing, sympathizing with, affirming, the facts are the facts, the truth is the truth. The left should be ashamed of itself, the corporate media should be ashamed of itself, the Democratic Party should be ashamed of itself for promoting lies and then trying to destroy anyone who corrects them or who tells them no. But even if the majority of Americans in this generation buy this and change their minds and say, yep, me too, right will still be right, wrong will still be wrong, and on God's terms. That will endure. Whether we will endure depends on our agreeing with God. But an update from Alex Nitzberg over at the Blaze regarding D Snyder of Twisted Sister Fame you may remember he came out last week criticizing transing minors and said this is not healthy how parents are encouraging this teachers are encouraging this this is becoming a cultural moment a, a fad really and it's very harmful and then there was a major backlash and he walked it back and there were some pretty strong criticisms of him for recanting or backpedaling. Some pretty strong criticisms of him leveled by not the Be and the Daily Wire. But the blaze points out that his more lengthy statement is not a total reversal, shall we say. It might not still be... Uh, The best that we would highlight him. I don't think he's an exemplar of what our messaging should be any more than we would be led by polls and we say, ah, okay, there's 57% who say this is wrong. Okay, great. It must be wrong. don't do that. That's argumentum ad populum. Even if it were 57% who said, yeah, I think your gender can change, it wouldn't change the fact. Right is right, wrong is wrong. But here was a more extended statement from D. Snyder. So I hear I'm transphobic. Really? Why did the San Francisco Gay Pride Parade invite me, D. Snyder, to be a grand marshal in their parade and sing, we're not going to take it on the center stage at what could possibly be the most important LGBTQIA plus gathering in the organization's long history? To quote Joe Garofoli. San Francisco Chronicle's senior political writer, quote, D. Snyder is a longtime supporter of LGBTQ rights, end quote. I've always stood with the community and its important causes. I was honored to accept the San Francisco Gay Pride Parade's invitation, and I even gave my blessing for, we're not going to take it to be used as this year's battle cry. Queer not going to take it. Is that transphobic? I was not aware the transgender community expects fealty and total agreement with all their beliefs and any variation or deviation is considered transphobic. So my lifetime of supporting the transgender community's right to identify as they want and honoring whatever changes they may make in how they present themselves to the world isn't enough? Why not? I've recently stated I do not believe young children are ready to decide their gender allocation. I believe their choices should be supported and accepted by their parents, but I do not think kids have the mental capabilities to make rational, logical decisions on things of a magnitude that will affect them for the rest of their lives. I do not believe they are mentally developed enough. And here, let me just take a step back. Let me point out that D. Snyder signs this, your cisgender cross-dressing ally. He signs it that way. So as I said before, he, if he were honest, would have to admit that he has helped to Bring us to this moment through his choices as an entertainer, through his own self-expression. And this just confirms it. He's been a longtime ally of the LGBTQ. Plus, his song has been a rallying cry for this activist movement. Just because he's now saying, mm, I don't think I'm on board with this piece. That doesn't mean. He's somebody to go to for guidance and direction, to be clear. But what is the response going to be to decider Snyder? It's going to be much the same as the men of Sodom to Lot. It's going to be, who appointed you to be a judge over us? We're going to do worse to you than we would to your guests when we demanded you send them out. You know, At a certain point, the tolerance and the inclusivity comes up against a hard no, and when that no finally does come, the people who are unified around not ever being told no on anything, they're not going to take it anymore, and it doesn't matter how much you've invested to this point. They'll say, if you're not with us now on this here, then you were never a friend of ours, and then what becomes of you if they tear you to pieces, if you're not saved from that? So on the one hand, we could say this is a very sad situation because he's cross-dressing literally, but also, again, as with the fabric made from two different materials, the cloth made from two different materials, and God saying don't, there's a double-mindedness to his taking a stand here, where he wants to have both the affirmation of the LGBTQ agenda and the liberal's And the progressives and the left. He wants to keep on having that, but he also wants to say, no, not on that. This is too far. I say, pay attention to D. Snyder's situation and don't be like D. Snyder. Don't end up like D. Snyder, where you're trying to appease everybody and it doesn't make any sense and it's not consistent and you won't be thanked for it. It'll be interesting to see what comes next. He's already been disinvited from this gay pride parade, but I think this is kind of the other side of the coin to what's going on with Bud Light. You know, Bud Light put Dylan Mulvaney on a can and they wanted him to be a spokesman. He, a spokesman. And then there was a huge backlash. And now... I don't even know if you can call it a boycott anymore. I think everybody's pretty much just done with Anheuser-Busch and Budweiser and Bud Light. I don't think Bud Light will ever come back from this. Maybe they will, but it's going to have to be a wholesale rejection of the woke business. And other corporations should take note. Likewise, oh, you think you're not going to take it? Homosexuals, transgenders. What if we finally said we're not going to take it anymore? What if we finally said, all right, enough is enough. You guys have been harassing us. All the while claiming victim, you've been harassing us, bullying us, terrorizing us, trying to destroy our businesses, trying to destroy our social fabric, trying to destroy our children, trying to destroy our peace and tranquility and enjoyment of our labors. How about we're not going to take it anymore? But then as Bud Light has tried to walk back the endorsement of Dylan Mulvaney and enlisting him to endorse their product, both hand. Now what you're finding is gay bars are going to boycott and they are boycotting Bud Light. They're saying, oh, so that's how it is. Well, then we're not going to buy Bud Light either. And so everybody's unhappy. And what would be much better is if we said, okay, what is objectively true? What is objectively good? That's what we are for. And we're for the fixed standard that comes from God. And if public opinion ebbs and it flows, we are going to follow the Lord, our God. We're going to build our house on the rock. For one, that's a much simpler, much less complicated way to live. But for two, that's the only way to actually live. We talk about sustainability all the time. In this day, everybody always takes it in the direction of environmental stewardship, But sustainability is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And you don't have that by trying to serve God and money. And you don't have that by trying to please man by just telling him whatever he wants to hear. Switching gears, Daily Wire reporter Ryan Saavedra wrote and published a piece over the weekend, A Slap in the Face for Russia, 42-Year-Old U.S. Weapon Beats Russia's Most Feared Cutting-Edge Missile. A U.S.-made Patriot Air Defense System was reportedly used to shoot down a Russian hypersonic missile in Ukraine late this week, marking perhaps the first time that a hypersonic missile has ever been shot down in combat. Ukraine Air Force Commander Mykola Oleschuk claimed that the newly acquired weapon— from the U.S. was used to shoot down a Russian hypersonic missile called Kinzhal, or dagger in Russian. Quote, congratulations to the Ukrainian people on a historic event, Olashuk posted on Telegram. Quote, yes, we brought down the unparalleled Kinzhal, end quote. Air Force spokesman Yuri Inat said that intercepting the nuclear-capable Kinzhal was Quote, a slap in the face for Russia, end quote, because the Russians quote, were saying that the Patriot is an outdated American weapon and Russian weapons are the best in the world. Quote, well, there is confirmation that it effectively works against even a super hypersonic missile. End quote. The New York Times reported that U.S. officials verified using technical means that a Patriot missile was used to destroy the feared Russian hypersonic missile. Russian President Vladimir Putin claimed in 2018 that the Kinzhal was, quote, invincible against all existing and prospective missile defense and counter-air defense systems. At least I assume that's what he sounded like when the interpreter interpreted him. <laughs> he was probably speaking in Russian. Uh, I bring this up, I bring this to your attention for a couple of reasons. One, because... Even though this report is coming from the American side and the Ukrainians, take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. Trust, but verify. Trust, but verify. Yes, you can say you used this to do what you did, but let's check, right? Let's just double check and make sure this isn't propaganda. Uh, The other side of it is, however to recognize that not just our side has, press, has has propaganda. The other side also, they definitely have propaganda. The Russians definitely are propagandizing. The Chinese are definitely propagandizing and projecting more than they actually have. Uh, if this were poker, you would say, sometimes you've got the cards, other times you're bluffing. If you never have the cards, well, then you're going to, stop having people actually let you bluff them out. Sometimes the Russians have the cards. Sometimes we have the cards. Sometimes it's a bluff. Sometimes it's just a matter of trying to get our public to continue supporting a war effort and to get their public to stop supporting the war effort. Not to say that the Russian people have all been for this, but let's be honest. At a certain point, if there's no winning and the consequences of continuing on are only cost but no real benefit, it's going to go uh, the wrong direction for Putin and for sustaining the Russian war machine in Ukraine and for sustaining the public relations campaign with other nations around the world, basically encouraging them to back off will not work if Russia is losing, if the end is in sight. But is the end in sight? Therein lies the question. That's something of a separate question from the main one that I want to consider, which is how much of the propaganda we associate with an actual war, Ukraine and Russia in this case, how much of that propaganda actually can be found uh, in a type, after a fashion, in the culture wars in the U.S. And what I mean by that is how much of what is said and reported on and how is kind of like the statement from Putin. Our missile is invincible until it isn't, right? Until we test it against our uh, countermeasures. And then we'll see, right? We'll see if it's an invincible uh, missile. You know, actually, in the first Cold War, this was part of Reagan's strategy for collapsing the Soviet Union. Uh, Not to make more and more and more destructive weapons, he figured, actually, you know what? We're in a really scary place if the only way we keep on fighting this war is to make more and more destructive weapons. We're going to just blow up the entire planet and then we all lose, right? Who does that benefit? Only crazy people who want to see the world burn. But he proposed the idea of Star Wars. And that's what it was called by some as a way of making fun of him. But he proposed defense systems that would be able to intercept nuclear warheads and protect America and her allies. That was a Reagan idea. If we can't keep on like we have been with just building more and more and more destructive nuclear weapons, then maybe what we do is we make the countermeasures that render ineffective their nuclear weapons. So we'll still have ours that we've built to this point and ours will still definitely work, but we'll make the countermeasures that neutralize their weapons. And then their cost benefit, their deterrence ability will be negated essentially. And they won't be able to bully us, right? You know, if somebody else at the table when you're playing poker has a really good hand and you don't think they're bluffing, but you know you you have an even better hand. In fact, you have the best hand, and they couldn't possibly have as good a hand as you do, or the odds are slim to none. Then you play, right? You play and you win. And if they were bluffing, you win. And if they weren't bluffing, but you have a better hand than they did, you win. And I think that's how we should think of the culture wars as well. If we have a better hand than the folks who are trying to systematically purge fear of God from how we think of our bodies, how we think of our gender and our sexuality, and our families, our homes, our schools, our places of business, our churches, if those people don't have the cards, if they've been bluffing and we never call their bluff, well, then we can't win. If they have good cards, so to speak, they have effective cards anyways, but we don't know how good of a hand we've got. And so we just never play. We're always fold, 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 fold. Then we can't win. But if we actually trust that we have good cards from God after a fashion, if you will, then we play. And if we trust that we have better cards than they have, then whether they're bluffing or they're not, whether they have good cards or awful cards, we play and that's the only way that we win. Speaking of having the cards, Iran now has enough enriched uranium to produce five nuclear weapons according to the Israeli Defense Minister. The Islamic Republic of Iran reportedly has enough enriched uranium to produce five nuclear weapons, a top Israeli official warned this week, according to more reporting from Ryan Zavedra. The news comes as President Joe Biden's administration has failed to secure a new nuclear agreement with Iran and has failed to stop Iran from continuing to develop its nuclear program. Israel Defense Minister Yoav Galant said during a trip to Greece on Thursday that Iran would, quote, not be satisfied by a single nuclear bomb, end quote. Quote, it has already accumulated enough enriched uranium at the 20% and 60% levels for five nuclear bombs, end quote. Quote, if Iran enriches to the 90% weaponized level, it would be a great error and the price would be heavy and there would be consequences which could inflame the Middle East, end quote. Now, let's be very clear when it comes to a hostile power like Iran. Iran does not care for the United States of America, but Iran hates Israel. They hate Israel. They hate the modern nation of Israel. They hate the Jews, and they hate that the Jews occupy what formerly was Islamic land. It's an outrage to Iran. If Iran has declared their intentions towards the U.S. and towards Israel, which they have, and we just do nothing as they develop nuclear weapons, which Biden and Obama before him have been intent on At best, that's the best you could say, is that Obama and Biden did nothing. But I think closer to the truth would be to say that the Obama administration enabled, actively, facilitated, lied to the American people, and behind the scenes, not even all that far behind the scenes, helped Iran. This is a major problem for Israel. This is a major problem for the United States of America And the kind of thinking that the Democrats engage Iran with is just opposite the kind of thinking that domestically they approach the problem of gun violence with. The difference here for the conservative, you might say, well, conservatives engage the problem of a nuclear armed Iran exactly opposite the way that conservatives approach the problem of gun control and gun rights here domestically. And I say, no, there's a big difference. The big difference is every conservative would agree if your crazy neighbor who might be on something starts chanting death threats to you and yours, and then you see your neighbor arming up, getting bigger and bigger weapons, more and more weapons, brandishing those weapons, pointing those weapons at your house. Then every conservative is like, yeah, yeah, let's call the police. Let's call law enforcement and have this guy dealt with, or let's not turn our back on him, right? At at a certain point, if this guy is threatening deadly violence against me again and again and again, the time to act is now not after he takes a shot, not after uh, he tries to end the life of you or somebody of your household. Well, so also in the case of Iran, if if they've stated their intentions very clearly, which they have again and again, and they're arming up with nuclear weapons, and the Obama administration and the Biden administration, but I repeat myself, didn't deal with it, but actually actively helped to facilitate it, well, call that... Diversity, equity, inclusivity, if you want. I call it something different. So, Israel will almost certainly have to deal with this. America, at a certain point here in the not too distant future, is going to have to deal with this. And we'll see where it goes. But again, going back to the culture wars analogies, when the radical left is increasingly hyperbolic in their rhetoric towards conservatives and towards Christians, At a certain point, we have to take them at their word that they really do see us the way that they are describing us. When the rhetoric is getting more and more inflamed, even just for our saying, here's my view, when there are increasingly destructive, violent demonstrations or threats for conservatives being conservatives, for Christians being Christians, at a certain point you say, I think they mean it. I think they're going to do what they say. I think this is trending in the direction of an explosive confrontation. And just so, just like we shouldn't be saying, well, there's no difference between Israel and Iran, and there's no difference between the Ukraine and Russia, and there's no difference between China and Taiwan in terms of who's the aggressor, who's at least got a right to exist. They can at least make that argument. Yeah, you know what? We're our own separate country. Yeah, you know what? We are not so hot on the whole getting conquered and murdered and driven into the sea and nuked and all that. You know, we're not so sold on that. I think we're going to fight you to keep you from doing that. Thank you. Well, so also, we have to say that the left-right divide in this country is not just flip a coin or... If you can find something wrong with conservatives, something wrong with Republicans, then therefore it doesn't matter who we support, who we vote for, who we identify with. No, that's irresponsible. That's not an option left open to us in God's word. Yes, there are distinctions. It's okay for there to be distinctions. The word tribal has been thrown around quite a lot in recent years. And every time there's a conflict between... The left and the right in this country, we will have people who want to be moderate and they want to get along with everybody and they're saying peace, peace, when it's highly questionable whether we have peace or can have peace on these terms. They'll say, well, but you're being tribal, as if that's somehow proof that there's no moral legitimacy to your position. Uh, So what? So what if somebody's being tribal? And the question should be, are you for the right tribe? Or is your tribe in the right? Is your tribe making a legitimate claim? If they are, and if the other side isn't, well, that should be verifiable. So are we trying to verify whether one tribe or the other is morally correct, has a moral basis, is making just war, if you will? If these are culture wars in the case of what's going on in the U.S., I think just war theory should apply, and we should consider who is trying to protect the innocent, who is trying to protect what rightfully belongs to them, their own private property, and who is objectively, according to God's standard, in the wrong, that we would call them to repentance. What you don't do, if somebody breaks into my house to steal my things, to harm my family, what you don't do is step between me and that person and say, Now, Garrett, you apologize to them and they're going to apologize to you because it takes two to tango. No, I'm going to say, you also can get out of my house (laughs) if that's what you try to tell me. I'm going to tell the person who broke into my house, you'd better get out of my house or I'm going to get you out of my house. And if you step between me and that person and say, Garrett, you know, everybody, everybody is wrong in this situation. You know, it's interesting. I was watching Matt Walsh's program a little bit this morning as I was waking up to my first cup of coffee. I'll take a sip, another sip of my coffee. I was watching Matt Walsh's program and he was talking about this upset in San Francisco after a transgendered person tried to shoplift from, I think it was a pharmacy, a Walgreens or something like that. And a armed security guard attempted to stop the shoplifter. And the shoplifter proceeded to either make a violent threat or take violent action. It sounds to me as though the shoplifter is accused of having tried to violently assault this armed security guard. And so what did the armed security guard do? But shoot this transgendered person. And the city of San Francisco has decided not to press charges against the armed security guard because this was clearly a case of self-defense. But the left is very upset about that. And the left is saying that there's nothing in that pharmacy that was worth this transgendered person losing their life. And I totally agree with Matt Walsh on this point. He says, you know what? Wait a second. (laughs) Flip this around. If there's nothing in that store worth losing one's life over, why are you telling the armed security guard that? Why are you telling the corporation that's been getting plundered and looted by criminals empowered by the left in cities like San Francisco. Why are you telling them that? Why are you not telling the would-be shoplifter, hey, there's nothing in this store worth losing your life over. There's nothing in this store that you would need to get violent with a armed security guard when he tries to tell you, no, stop. There's nothing in this store worth you violently assaulting a armed security guard over and potentially threatening his life jeopardizing his life there's nothing in the store worth his losing his life over but see if even the city of san francisco said this was self defense well then what they're not saying is the armed security guard was defending some little 20 dollar trinket that the trans person was stealing no he was he was defending his own life so what will we say His life wasn't worth defending because a transgendered person lost their life? If we understand that there is such a thing as right and wrong, these are categories that exist which don't come from me and they don't come from you, therefore you and I can't abolish them objectively. We can deny them, we can ignore them, but then we run the risk of Jesus saying to us on the last day, depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. I don't want to hear that. I don't want you to hear that. That's not where we want to be. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. The Great Commission is not just go, right? It's not just, hey, see the world. No, go and make disciples, which is to say discipline is core to the Great Commission. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you is the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you Yes, there's the baptism piece, right? Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But teach them to observe all that I've commanded you is to say, you're not supposed to go and make disciples of all nations saying, it doesn't really matter whether you're obeying Jesus or not. No, that's not what Jesus said. But then I suppose while we're at it, while we're ignoring what Jesus said, when it comes to how we make disciples so often, we might just ignore what Jesus said with regards to the Great Commission in the first place. And I think we are in too many cases because our first goal is too similar to the Pharisees, standing on street corners, praying to be heard by men, giving and announcing our giving with loud music, drum roll please, indeed, trumpets. Hey, look at me. Look at how much money we're giving to this cause. You know what would be better than that? If nobody but God knew that you had given that money, then we would know for sure that it was coming from pure motives, not selfish ambition and vain conceit. But to get a reward from God, he'll know. He won't be hoodwinked. But it's telling that Biden was absent as world leaders gathered to attend the historic coronation of King Charles III, reporting by Leif LeMahieu over at the Daily Wire points out that President Joe Biden was noticeably absent during the ceremony that took place at Westminster Abbey in London. The 74-year-old Charles promised to serve the British people and uphold the Church of England. Charles' wife Camilla was crowned queen during the historic ceremony. Quote, I come not to be served but to serve, end quote, Charles said before the Archbishop of Canterbury put St. Edward's crown made in 1661 on his head. Quote, stand firm and hold fast from henceforth the seat of royal dignity, which is yours by the authority of Almighty God. May that same God whose throne endures forever establish your throne in righteousness, that it may stand fast forevermore. End quote. Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, said during the crowning. Now, what's curious about this is there's still the form of godliness to the coronation of King Charles Third. There's still a form of godliness whereby we recognize that authority comes from God. There is still embedded in the rituals the form of godliness where the petition is that God would establish his throne in righteousness. They give at least lip service to it. And you might say, well, but that's just cultural Christianity. If they don't mean it, then it would be better if they didn't say it. And I say, let's be careful. Let's be careful. At least we have the reminder that we should mean these things. I don't mean to give any cover at all for King Charles Third, but I mean to say, wouldn't it be better that we would say, mean it, instead of don't say it? Why do we give up on meaning it? All these complaints about cultural Christianity, I don't fully understand, because it's always assumed that we should be happy that people are not saying things they don't mean, why is it not assumed that we should try to persuade people to mean the things that they're saying? I mean, Biden, for instance, let's come back to the States. I mean, he was absent from Charles III's coronation, which you would expect. Britain being a major U.S. ally and us being potentially on the verge of World War III, you would imagine the American president would be there, probably, But then maybe we weren't welcome. Maybe Biden is not welcome. Biden's job approval, according to reporting by Michelle Blood at TheBlaze.com, his approval ratings have hit a new low. And you have even Democrat Party strategists advising the White House to wake up. Biden's approval ratings have dipped to a new low of 36 percent less than two weeks after formally announcing his intention to seek re-election. The Washington Post reported Sunday, quote, Biden's overall approval ratings, however, are only part of a broader and larger negative assessment of him as a candidate for re-election. I'm sorry, largely negative assessment. The Washington Post wrote of its poll jointly conducted with ABC. The poll was taken between April 28th and May 3rd. It included 1,006 U.S. adults and has an error margin of plus or minus 3.5%. Asked who was better at handling the economy, 54% former 54% said former President Trump did a better job, with only 36% endorsing Biden's economic strategies. In addition to the flagging overall approval rating, the post ABC poll showed only about one third of Americans believe the current commander in chief has the mental acuity required to do the job. Trump beat Biden 64 to 33 in respondents' assessments of the men being in good enough physical health. Also, Trump beat Biden again 54 to 32 on having a mental sharpness to serve effectively in the office. On trustworthiness, however, the numbers were flipped with Biden beating Trump 41 to 33. Now, why do more Americans trust Biden than Trump? We have our corporate media to blame for that. We have social media to blame for that. We have celebrities to blame for that. We have the political establishment in this country to blame for that. And to some extent, we have Trump to blame for that. I'm sorry, but that's just a frank assessment. As somebody who voted for him in 2016, voted for him in 2020, I would vote for him again in 2024 if he's the candidate. I think, I hope, I'll be able to if he is the candidate. But then what have I been saying about the need to not be double-minded if he's going to endorse homosexuality and transgenderism for adults, all the while doing a similar thing to the Twisted Sister rocker saying, hey, I'm just saying don't do this to the kids, but you can do it if you're an adult. What is that? What is that? On a lighter note, not the B-staff, May 6th had a amusing post. Here's everything you need to know about the coronation of King Charles today. This was May 6th, 2023. All that is in this post is a gif of Ron Swanson in London saying, <laughs> history began. History began on July 4th. 1776, everything before that was a mistake. (laughs) Uh, Of course, this is tongue-in-cheek. It's comedy. It's humorous. It's not for reals. But I assure you, that's not the reason why Biden wasn't there. And to be quite honest, I do think the American president should be there for the coronation of a British monarch. Not to swear fealty. Not to bend the knee. It was good that we declared independence, but it's also good that we would be allies when we have the very real prospect of a war with China and Russia and Iran. I would like to see us having a close relationship where we can have close relationships with allies on the right terms. And I don't believe that Biden is capable of delivering that. Unfortunately, I wish it were otherwise. But there are problems of his advanced age, his mental condition, and even if he were sharp, like he used to be a lot sharper, even if he were sharper, if his principles are corrupt, if what he is for and what he's against is tainted, then maybe in some sense, it's actually God's grace to us that he is not sharp right now. In closing... God takes his name very seriously, and we should too. God wants us to be diligent. He calls us to that. He's gracious, but we shouldn't presume on his grace in an irreverent way. We are not under law, but neither are we permitted to be lawless without consequence. We should be looking to God's word for our standard of what is true and what is good and we should be very clear that we are for the good and we are for the true. If we're not perfect, he gives more grace, but we don't sin that grace might abound all the more by no means. And whether we're talking domestic policy, whether we're talking foreign policy, whether we're talking cultural wars, whether we're talking actual hot wars or cold wars, in some sense, it doesn't matter because our goal is to provide faithful representation to the Lord our God. And so we call for repentance as Christians because we love our neighbor, not because we hate our neighbor, because we love our neighbor. We speak up for those who are being led away to the slaughter, those who are being oppressed. We know the value of the word no, but we also know what to say yes to. And my hope and my prayer for this country is that we remember what God has told us to say yes to what he says yes to, and we lean into that because there's a great deal of blessing that comes with agreeing with God. In the words of Abraham Lincoln, sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I've got to run, as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.